Hello, everybody, and when you say hello, everybody, on the first episode of yet another podcast hosted by some guy nobody knows, that, my friends, is an act of faith. But hello, everybody, be you a podcast adventurer, a friend of mine, or a friend or a fan of my first guest, improviser, and actor, and writer, David Pasquese. Whoever you are, hello. This is the Hog Butcher Radio Hour, and I'm Ron Lazzaretti. This is our first show, so if you're the kind of person that goes to the stock car races in hopes of seeing a crash, you've tuned in on a good day. But in the interest of getting better at this as soon as possible, I will be critiqued by the podcast team of Joe Layshock and Ed Flynn immediately after today's interview. In any case, the premise here is pretty simple. I'll be talking to an eclectic mix of people who are either based here in Chicago or originated from here or whose careers were shaped here. We'll also make room for some comedy, hopefully intentional, and some music. And this early in the game, it's fair to say we'll just be feeling our way and trying to kind of make it up as we go along, which is why I think it's fitting to have David Pasquese as our first guest. He and his improv partner, T.J. Jagodowski, are pretty much the guys when it comes to making things up as you go along. Hence the 2010 documentary, Trust Us, This Is All Made Up, about their acclaimed, ongoing, improvisational stage show. If you've never seen the documentary or their show live, imagine this. Two guys walk on stage, neither knowing what the other guy is going to do, and for the next hour or so, they proceed to construct a new totally improvised one-act play out of thin air. No two shows the same. It's amazing. I first met Dave while we were both taking classes at the Players' Workshop of the Second City some 30 years ago. That was before he went on to the main stage at Second City, before he starred in plays like The Goodman's Gods of Carnage or Steppenwolf's Dazzle, Glengarry Glen Ross, and last year's The Qualms before he appeared in films like Groundhog Day or TV shows like Veep, before he joined forces with TJ, with whom he recently opened his own theater, The Mission, inside the new I.O. building. Dave and I kept in touch throughout the years and worked together, first in commercials and later in an independent film that I wrote and directed, and also more recently in a web series called Graveyard that we developed together and continue to do with the great Chris Stolte of Chicago Fire. I think we also kind of bonded over a mutual desire to stay in Chicago, and while we've seen many of our contemporaries move on to one or the other coast, some to find fame or fortune, some to be bloodied in the great showbiz wars, David and I sort of defiantly, and for better or worse, decided that this is where we wanted to be. One afternoon some years back, we were having lunch at one of our favorite Chicago haunts, Club Lago. David ordered his usual plate of spinach and potatoes, and somehow we got on this topic of staying in Chicago. I was saying, you know what, David? We fell in love with these women. We had families, and we decided that this is where we wanted to be. This is where we wanted to raise our children. This was our choice, and this is our home. And David looked up, nodded, and said, what if we were wrong? And I said, please don't do that, David. And he repeated it. What if we were wrong? Then he smiled and went back to eating his spinach and potatoes. I'm Ron Lazaretti, and this is the Hog Butcher Radio Hour. Has this begun? I guess that's my first question. Has this begun? Um, yeah. I think oh, wait a minute. I, you ask the questions. I was thinking, I've known you a long time, and 
I think we met originally at Players Workshop of the Second City. But this is how I remember you. You got you, you came flying in on a skateboard more often than not. You, you that was your primary mode of transportation, I think, at that time. That does not surprise me. Um, you you struck me as something of a lone wolf. Um, <laughs> I'm immediate. I immediately think of uh, Michael McKeon's uh, satin jacket in uh, Laverne and Shirley. <laughs> oh, <laughs> it wasn't exactly what I meant, but you 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 just had an air of um, you were sort of, to my mind, the Clint Eastwood of the <laughs> of the improv scene. You know, <laughs> the the man with no name. Um, and, and already, uh, already very respected. You already had it going on. What you, you already had a real angle on it. And I guess my, my, my question is, did you have any sense when you first walked into that room and did it that, whoa, I, f- I found my calling? I was scared to do it. My mom insisted that I go with my brother. Um, I was in college probably my third college in as many years. And uh, um, I did not like that the beginning of class, there was like a space exercise or something like this is exactly as fucking (laughs) queer as I thought this was going to be. But then after we did that, uh, it was, we did sketches and stuff. We did scenes. And I still remember my, my brother and a guy named Julie Frazen, who was a judge here in the city. Um, I still remember one of the scenes we did in one of those very first classes. It was a dentist scene. I'm like, wow, this is, this is fun, and it seems to be going well. And I'm like, wow, this was great. After that first class, I'm like, wow, this is, I didn't know that this was available. And I had avoided theater like the plague all through high school and stuff in college too but um does it even now does it frighten you at all the, the prospect of getting up there even you and tj have been doing this you've been doing this how many years together 13 like today and and it, does it still make you nervous to get up there and without a net i don't know about that without a net but because uh, it's with tj so it's not gonna He's not going to suck. Um, <laughs> so, <laughs> um, uh, yeah, but I mean, there's always concern that, you know, you don't, we don't want it to go poorly. And we know that if we're really doing the thing, we're truly giving over to it. We don't, we have no idea what's going to happen. How often does it go poorly? Really poorly, embarrassingly poorly in moments, not the whole show. I would find those exhilarating to see you guys. As the audience? <laughs> an embarrassing... That's nice. <laughs> just, stay stay just, away. Well, I think at You're some like point... You're like the guy in craps that bets against the guy with the dice, right? <laughs> I just think t- to know that disaster is possible is probably a big part of the thrill of watching improv it sometimes. It is, and, and it isn't for the, you know, the... the um, racing car enthusiast looking for a crash it's like but i do think it's the audience knows oh they really don't know what's going to happen it really that truly is a possibility that this is just gonna the wheels are just going to come right off this thing and so because of that there's inherent 
um, conflict, dramatic conflict that's real, so we don't have to make it up in you know right. in story. You know, when that Walenda character walked between the buildings, I was out of town. Um, did you see any of it? I did not. Well, it, I do I, remember the guy in New York doing it. On uh, the guy that uh, yes, mm-hmm. right Bird on a wire guy, right. Mm-hmm. I mean, to watch it on television, it was so packaged and televised. And I guess that's part of what I'm saying was, you know, you don't want a guy to fall, you know, uh, from what would be the top of the Marina Towers, you know, to whatever, or Leo Burnett building. Or, but at the same time, it felt a little like nothing happened when I watched it on television. And the following week, I walked down the street where that was, and I looked up in the air, and that made me post-appreciate it <laughs> much more than when I had watched it on television. And yes. I think that's what I mean. You and TJ are so, uh, you know, people know that they can count on you that on one level it's almost like good to know that still it could run off the rails a little bit because it, th- there's a thrilling aspect to that. Yeah, I think it's, it's, a, it's a fine line. You don't want to, as an audience, you don't want to, I've watched a lot of improvisation. Some of it's just dreadful. Also, a lot of plays are terrible. Um, And a lot of it has to do with someone walks on stage and they're terrified. And he's just, ah, fuck. Now I got to worry about you? (laughs) Uh, That's not what I'm here for. You know what? That's true. Um, And so there's a fine line between that, you know, someone with some walks on stage with confidence. And then, but also being open to, we don't know what's happening, but being confident that whatever happens is still, we're going to be able to handle it. So it's a, it, to me, it's a fine line between, you know, confidence and like a cockiness is right. really unattractive. You know, Jerry Garcia uh, playing guitar was so great because he'd work himself into a corner. He's like, oh man, this is a dead end. And he'd somehow, you know, make his way out. It was like really unexpected, but it can't come from just playing traditional melodies. He's worked himself into something very difficult and then escaped, you know. And so I do think it's required that these difficult spots have to be there in order for extraordinary reactions to them. Uh, I can probably say nicer things to you on this than I can just sitting around talking um, because... I don't have to listen, do I? (laughs) Well, I was just going to say, actually, I'm I'm getting to a point. It's a compliment to a point. Let me know when I should start listening. (laughs) I I remember seeing you in Glengarry Glen Ross at the Steppenwolf. And aside from the fact that I really just thought it was an amazing performance and a performance of a role that had already been sort of made famous by, you know, Joe Montaigne, Montaigne, you know, so it's like you're walking into that kind of a thing in in a Chicago theater. Just thought the, well, I thought the whole production was great. Tracy Letts, as I recall, was in that as well. Correct. Correct. Mm -hmm. And, um, directed by Amy, Mike Nussbaum, Mm -hmm. Mike Um, Shelley, and um, and it was, yeah, right. And, it was it was great, but what sort of impressed me or surprised Peter me Burns. F- from your standpoint, Al Wilder. Uh, yeah, you're right. They're all in that. Gary Brichetto. Mm-hmm. I think we're almost done with that's them. it. That's it. Um, well, all excellent. What kind of surprised me was your ability. Like, I don't think there's a more 
precise. Well, there probably is because I don't know anything about theater, but Neither I just think, I. I think Mamet has got that. There's something so precise in the way it's written. And it's down to the syllables, you know. It's not just, you know, the, it's it's. There's a rhythm, and there's something. Every half word, everything that it gets interrupted and doubles back on itself. It's so precise, and that seemed to me to be sort of the opposite of improvisation, which is free form. And I guess it's not really been my experience that people who are good at one are necessarily good at the other. Um, when did you find out, since you don't have a theater high school background or any of that stuff? No theater background at all, except for doing plays. So when did you find out that you could also do that? First of all, do you recognize them as being different? Yes. Um, they're, uh, the first time I did a play was, um, at the remains, the, uh, Chicago conspiracy trial. Mm-hmm. You were Abby Hoffman? Right. And uh, the wonderful Larry Sloan, who ran the remains, uh, uh, would allow us to come in and audition. You know, most, most of the theaters didn't, didn't uh, like improvisers in Second City folk were not really, uh, were considered different than actors. But Larry Sloan um, was great like that. He'd just have everybody come in. And, and same over at Steppenwolf and, and everywhere now, pretty much. But back then, it was it, there was more of a distinction between those buffoons and actors. And um, uh, But the first play I ever did, I'd never done one before. And I remember getting a bunch of, you know, during previews, they the stage manager, in this case it was Puff, uh, would they write down these notes on pieces of paper that are these little slips of paper that say, here's the line, and whether or not you paraphrased or transposed lines or left out words or whatever, and they give you, and I got a stack of them. And she handed them to me, and I thought she was joking. I'm like, man, I was, I was pretty close on all that. She's like, yeah, uh, pretty close, doesn't fucking matter. <laughs> <laughs> so that was my introduction to doing a play. It's like, Pretty close doesn't matter. The job is to say all the words that somebody else wrote. Um, so it's a different job. So I do view it as different. But it's a fascinating job to me also. That job is is interesting. How do you make all those words that aren't yours? Because at Second City, you know, you you make, you you do the scenes that you've come up with. And if you feel like changing it that night, you change it. Um and, you know, you're playing with the other people, and, and this scene goes a little longer tonight. Um, and you get hung out to dry uh, because you were joking around a little too seriously with someone backstage. And it's just, it's, it's always changing. But with a play, that's not the job. The job is to do the words that were published as a play. And I, 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 it's a fun job also, but it's a different job. Tell me about... Tell me about your experience leading up to and getting onto the main stage at Second City. How does all that go down? I mean, as I recall, people back in that era, for a while, particularly people who went to Players Workshop or whatever, really thought, I go through Players Workshop, I, I, you know, I graduate, I have an improv group, and then I go to Saturday Night Live. Like, everybody really thought, that's, you know, that's pretty much how it works. You get it, you know, you graduate school, then you get the job. And um, 
Was there that kind of attitude when you, obviously it was hot. Well, I suppose there was, but this improvisation is, was a different path back then. And the, Second City, it was the only job in town for a uh, sketch comedian. Um, and even for an improviser, was the o- that was the only paying job. And Second City isn't really about improvisation. I mean, this show's a sketch review. You're, you're an actor more than anything, like a cabaret performer rather than an improviser. That's how the material is developed, but that's not the real job. Um, but that was the only paying gig in town. And so everyone kind of, that's the brass ring. That's what, you, that's what you're heading toward. But improvisation itself, we were a, there was a different breed somewhat because Dell was coming up with the Herald, which was improvisation in itself as the entertainment, which was new, a new idea. Um, and, uh, and so it was, as Noah Gregoropoulos put it, that it was a guaranteed dead end. Uh, <laughs> so it, it attracted a different, a less ambitious <laughs> um, uh, performer, right? It was like, we love doing this, and it doesn't matter where it goes. This, we love doing this, and, um, and it doesn't even matter that no one comes to see it. We love doing this. As my dad said when he came to see one of the first heralds, he goes, now I understand why you do it. Why do people come to see it? <laughs> uh, and yeah, there's a, um, there, there, another guy, Kevin L. Burroughs, was, there was a kid one time, and he asked this kid, well, what do you, what do you, what do you see happening? And the kid said, well, I'll, you know, take the classes, and then what? Well, then I'll finish the classes, and I'll graduate, uh-huh, and then what? Well, I'll do a grad show, and then what? I don't know, get an improv group together. Okay, and then what? Uh, um, get on one of the touring companies in Second City, uh-huh, and then what? We'll tour for a little while, and then what? Get on one of the stages, like, uh, I don't know, like Rolling Meadows or ETC or something. Okay, then what? Well, then move up to main stage. Okay, then what? Do a couple of reviews at main stage. Then what? Uh, go to Saturday Night Live. Okay, and then what? Uh, get some movies, do some movies or something like that. Okay, and then what? Oh, I don't know. Guess Let's just die. <laughs> and Kevin said to him, why don't you just die? <laughs> That's an excellent question. Cut to the chase, motherfucker. <laughs> right, and I suppose that's part of it as an improviser. It's this is fine right now. And, and it's weird for everyone else. Even for, I mean, in, in any kind of, uh, entertainment or whatever. It's like, well, you think that'll lead to something? Like this isn't, that the inherent in that question is this is not enough. Um, that it's always got to lead to something else, but I, I don't think to the improviser. I don't, I don't think so. Hmm. Who, who, do, who were you with during that period? Like who, when you were on, how long were you on the main stage first I of all? I did three reviews there. Um, Back then, how long did a review go? All a little foggy for me. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it seems to me that, like, when we were talking about... I know that we did a review in 1988 (laughs) at Rolling Meadows because the name of the show was Pieces of 88. That's the only way I can remember. Okay. Well, that's that's helpful. How much much did things like Saturday Night Live even... uh, it was, you know, uh, that was, I think, I think it's, I mean, that's why I was introduced to any of it. I'd always heard about Second City growing up, but 
Saturday Night Live was the thing that I saw. I saw um, Monty Python mm-hmm. and Saturday Night Live. And um, SCTV? Later. Mm-hmm. Ramus from all that. You 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 knew Harold Ramus pretty well. Mm-hmm. He was, mm-hmm. and uh, would you, you did uh, Groundhog Day? As he says, I, I I just got the biggest kick out of it. He said, uh, "David and I have done four films together." <laughs> he was the nicest nicest guy. Yeah, he really did seem cool. How, how did you come to meet him at first? Um, I believe just through auditioning for Groundhog Day, and uh, and then. Um, he was awfully nice to me on that. And then I looked him up when I was out in Los Angeles and I, uh, I just called him up and we would have lunch occasionally. Um, and then he, when he moved back here, we, we spent more time together in our families as well. Um, uh, yeah. He just seemed like the real deal. Well, I, unbelievable. And again, the head down walking around on Groundhog Day, he's the boss and the whole, the whole set is so friendly and supportive. It was just, he, I remember I was worked on it for a, a, I think only a day. I was on it for a day. He walks me around personally and introduces me to everyone. Yeah. Just, and it's not like that was just me. He did that. That was just the way he was. He did that for everybody. He's like, you're part of this. Everybody's part of this. It was just really pretty gracious. Um, I sat next to him once. But I mean, I have no experience with him whatsoever other than coincidentally I sat next to him once at a Bulls game. And, of course, I, you know, I, you, you, there's that thing where you don't really want to bother somebody, but mm-hmm. you're sitting next to him the entire Bulls game. And uh, as I recall, they were about to do the Blues Brothers 2000 or something like that. Do you mm-hmm. remember? They did a sure. s- sequel to the Blues Brothers. With uh, Jim uh, Belushi, and, I think. And uh, Goodman. Uh, yes. John Goodman, right? Right. Mm-hmm. And Macaulay Culkin? Wasn't accurate. I don't know. I didn't. <laughs> Macaulay Culkin? <laughs> I don't think so. Was, was he one of the Blues Brothers? I believe. I believe he was. It I believe was, he was the. Maybe he was in the Steve Cropper, Duck Dunn, and Donald Ma- Duck Dunn, and Macaulay Culkin. Mm-hmm, maybe I don't think so. I think this that you may be confusing I that pr- with something else. I probably else. am. I um, got the president's name wrong the other day. Not our current president. Which president? Um, I, I, mistook, I mistook Andrew Jackson for having died of pneumonia when I believe it was Harrison. Well, I think that's a fair mistake. I don't know. Ask, ask the Jacksons. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you bring up an excellent point here, too, which is I think most of the really good improvisers that I've seen seem to be really smart. Like, it seems like having a big brain... Uh, where you can access all kinds of information, both important stuff and arcane things. You know what I I mean? Yeah, I do. I don't know that it's essential. I think improvisation is a great place. I I don't think it's exclusive at all. Some of my favorite improvisers have, they're just fearless. They don't have uh, a great grasp of information but they're just I, I guess I don't I, I think improvisation makes room for all kinds that's what I one of the things I really like about it, it doesn't require a, look look at me it doesn't require but I'm saying you are actually, you are in a person that very often you can you do know a lot of stuff whether you realize it or not I can just in conversation you bring up things and I'm like god 
I should read more books. I should read more books. All right. Everybody should read more books. All right. Uh, Stop. Yeah. Turn this thing off and go read a book. <laughs> that's, a, that's an excellent idea. You know, you said something to me once, and I was wondering what. We, we've, we've done a few little things together, and one of them we've is We've done this, a lot of things together. Yes, a lot of things. And um, one of them is this this film, Something Better Somewhere Else, which is really four stories. And I remember, first, I came to you with one of the stories. Four stories tall. <laughs> four stories. <laughs> I came to you with one of these stories where it was a guy leaving his office, you know, and um, he was leaving his job and kind of a goodbye party for him that kind of turns dark. And uh, I wanted you to play this guy who was that guy and he was a little bit more of the everyman um and i gave you the material to read and and you came back to me and and i said yes yeah, so i want you to play and you said um i want to play this guy and it was a another character in the thing who was a boss who was a little bit of an asshole and something that i knew you could lean into really well and that you and you said i, I want to play this guy and i said well you know you've played those guys and all that. I, I haven't really seen you be the guy, you know, just sort of the every guy. Uh, I just thought maybe it'd be more fun for you to play this other one because it's different. And you said, yeah, I, I want, I'd like to play this guy. He seems like it would be more fun. And I said, okay. And you did. And you, and it was, you know, good and smart. And, and then we did another one um, where a guy is trying to move his family on moving day and and you play this character, this father, which is really kind of that everyman guy that I wanted you to play. And we would see it in festivals and things of that nature, and you would go to these things. And that was always the last story in the in the in the movie. And whenever we would get to that story, you would um, you wouldn't. I'd turn around and you'd be gone. And once I, I said to you, why? I've noticed you've never sat still for the one story. I, I think it's my favorite of the four. Uh, I noticed you're never there for that. And you said to me, um, yeah, too close. And I thought, hmm. I said, what do you mean? And you said, just too close. And, and I, th I took it to mean... That one's a little closer to me. Too close to me, maybe. And I can't... That sounds very uh, cryptic. Who talks like that? <laughs> you do. <laughs> I mean, is that something that you are sensitive to? Like, Yeah, I suppose so. Clearly, I am. If I, if I get up and leave. <laughs> <laughs> why would you do that? Uh, I, I, why would I get up and leave? Yeah, but I mean, why would that be something... Oh, I, well, here's why one gets up and leaves. One doesn't want to be there, so that's that, uh, so. In, is that the? I don't know that that was actually. Are you not? Are you drawn less to characters that feel closer to you? Not necessarily. Um, no, not necessarily. I uh, no. Do you play enough of those? Do you play? Do you get a chance to play those I kinds of characters? I don't often. I don't often. Uh, only Ron Lazzaretti lets me do that. <laughs> No, I don't think that's true. Um, I actually think the Veep character is... That's pretty close. That's, uh, <laughs> see, the asshole thing is... That's, that's my thing. It, no, really. It's not, though, right? 
I mean, oh no, that's what I play. I mean, that's what I get hired to do quite often. That shitty lawyer, asshole, this uh, shitbag, that. um, Jag off. Don't you ever wish people had a little more imagination in being able to? I wish they had more imagination in that they'd think, oh, he he could do this. Always. Right. (laughs) Right. Right. I also would like to play the really bad guy. Right. Like that Stolte did in that uh, that movie. Yes, Chris Stolte in, um, what's that movie? Gerard. Yeah. Not Depardieu, the guy whose last name is Gerard. (laughs) Right, right. I don't, gosh, I wish I could remember it. Um, but he was great in that. Yes, he played a really evil character. Mm-hmm. Um, Child rapist, I think. Is Jamie Foxx in that? Yes, movie? he is. Yes, okay. Child rapist. He's Chris Stolte, child rapist. I mean, it's alluded to, <laughs> at least the way I see it. Yeah. Not, um, well, and that's another great thing that we get to do. I mean, I think might as well promote it web series nobody watches on a podcast nobody listens to. Um, Sounds like the perfect match. <laughs> it's pretty much, that's pretty much how we operate. But uh, <laughs> To be fair, this isn't made yet. That's so true. No one could have listened to right, this. That's, yeah, that's absolutely right. Um, <laughs> but I saw you and Chris in... Um, Romance. Which was also a mammoth. It was. Thing, mm-hmm. Part of the mammoth festival at the Goodman. Goodman. Mm-hmm. Um and you guys had sort of instant chemistry there. You, you yeah, we had a great time. Uh, we and that the, the scene uh, that was directed by Pam McKinnon, uh, and it was uh, that was a great time. Yeah, we got along real well. Matt DeCaro was in that as well. Right. Mm-hmm. I should say Chris Stolte, who for people who don't know, and this is Mouch on uh, the series Chicago, Chicago Fire. Chicago Fire, which you also appear on. I have been on it. Yes, yes, I've seen you. As a shithead. Right. You play a shithead in that as well, but you had a hot wife, as I recall. Yeah. I don't know what that, why. I don't know. I didn't understand that either. Um, Why is that a big deal? I guess they were thinking if you were, uh, if your character was a big douche, that he wouldn't have a pretty wife. That's simply not true. I think that. (laughs) You're right. I think, I think oftentimes big douches have Mm -hmm. pretty wives. Yep. you know, I, I'm happy for Stolte too because he. Oh, well, we were. I was about to say that we do the little web series grave, graveyard, but um, uh, also can be found on the on the online as thegraveyardshow.com, I the, believe. Thegraveyardshow.com, um, and I'm happy for Chris too because they just got picked up for their fourth season on Chicago Fire. But here's a guy too who's stuck around in Chicago, mm-hmm. and um, so that's an interesting point to me too. You are here, you've stayed here, you're from here. It's always been sort of a thing for me too. I love it here and this is where I live. It may not in some ways be the most logical place to live for guys who do the kinds of things we do. So uh, how's that? But for people who are, you know, are drawn to a guaranteed dead end, this is is the spot (laughs) for showbiz. (laughs) (laughs) But you have managed, like Chris, to do what you want to do where you want to do it. Yeah, I'm real uh, fortunate and grateful to uh, advertising. Uh, the only reason I get to stay here is because I, I uh, do advertising. Same that's here. The, that's the only reason, and uh, and I don't 
I know that. Um, a lot of guys that I know had to leave, not because they chose to leave, but they weren't getting work, and so they had to go where the where they could get work. And that is uh, often to a terrible place. Which place are you talking about? I'm talking not talking about New York. Mm-hmm. Okay. You and Chris have a little bit of a. There's a not like a, it's, it's not like a but you, the, if you put the two of you together, there's a sort of a comedy team aspect to it, even physically. Um, mm-hmm. How did you come? How did you and TJ find that together? Uh, we just started working together. We just decided to start, and um, I'd seen him before, and. Uh, Somebody that Noah again, who I mentioned, Noah mm-hmm. Gregoropoulos, sure. mentioned to TJ, "Hey, you guys should, you guys would be good together. You should try." So we started, started working on something, and um, we we just started improvising together on our own show. Sharna Sharna Halpern, who Sharna Halpern, who runs the IO, gave us whatever time we wanted, and we chose ten thirty on a Wednesday night, and um, we just started doing. No one, had, we had no idea what we were going to do. She had no idea what we were going to do, and the audience had no idea what we were going to do. But they came anyway. I'm so curious about that process that you have. I mean, just on the surface of it, you guys both show up at a place at night. You walk out on a stage, and then somebody just starts doing something. Is it really that simple? Yeah. Um, if you want to know more about it, there's a book you, called. Uh, uh, Improvisation at the Speed of Life. Is this book a how-to book? Is it a history of... Uh, it's a your- way... Uh, not really. It's just our, our ideas about improvisation. It's like well, how we think of improvisation, which, which I think is a little different than, than a lot of people. Are you at, at liberty to divulge... Like, if it's Wednesday evening, what, is, what happens? You have dinner at 6 o'clock... <laughs> You what? Uh, what leads to the moment when you're on stage together? Well, I think the only thing that m- that really matters in that is when we show up here, um, and oftentimes we'll sh- and anymore. We run this theater now. We're at the Mission Theater here in Chicago. That's um, where we're speaking that's from where we're speaking right now. From the beautiful Mission Theater, fifteen oh one North Kingsbury Avenue, K- Kingsbury Street in Chicago, and depending upon your point of reference, either across the street from the Whole Foods or just down the street from the Strip Club. Um, and we welcome all, <laughs> regardless of your landmark. Um, I almost walked into the wrong place when I came How over. wrong? Uh, it's well, the Whole Foods? <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, and there's the Kingsbury Cafe next to it, which is a really good restaurant. Um, hmm. So we, unfortunately, we used to just walk in and do the show and walk out, and we had no responsibilities other than that and that was really nice uh, but now we unfortunately we we have to at 10 o'clock the show starts at 10 30 at 10 o'clock we have a moratorium on business talk um and then because this is something else this is and, and we still hold it um you know uh in high regard the that imp- that show that we're doing is uh, we we that's why we get nervous about it we'd like it we we think highly of improvisation and we want to um present it well we wouldn't want anybody to watch our show and think oh fucking improv blows Mm -hmm. um so we uh 
Um, so we don't we so there is that's why we get nervous. We think it's important uh, to not fuck it up. We don't think what we're doing is anything drastically. It's a weird thing. We don't really think anything that we're doing is important, but we think it's important that improvisation not get a bad name because of us. Um, so uh, at about ten o'clock, we just stop thinking about that. We'll play darts, play catch. Play, uh, just maybe go help, you know, just mention the highlights of one another's day or whatever. I was talking to this guy or something. That's it. Then at about, so the show starts at 10.30. At about 10.20, uh, lights get turned off or something. Just sit there or walk backstage in the dark um, while the audience is here listening to music. And we separate and just kind of try to shut down the, uh, monkey wheel and uh, and then the, the song starts uh, ex-Americans Ike Riley's ex-Americans goes on it's about a five minute song from then on we don't talk to one another um, and then the other song starts which is Black Cat now and about halfway through Black Cat we uh, walk on stage and then then we and then after we talk to the audience for a second lights go out lights come back up and we start it's very, it seems very ritualistic. It is. Kind of like can, a ball player coming up. Yeah, to, I think some of it is we, there's so much we don't have any idea what's going on. So at least this five minutes before, we're sh- this, this five minutes, this is the same, this is the same, this is the same, this is the same, and now we have no idea. And I, I, doing as many shows as you've done, how do you not repeat yourself? Well, I think to others, it may look like, oh, that's that same lady. Oh, he's doing that lady again. But to us, we're not doing that. We're just like, oh, this is specifically this person. We're not, we've done a thousand or more shows. I don't know if, I, I'm not good enough to do a thousand differentiated ladies, but they are different, you know? Um, <laughs> it's not like I only play ladies. Uh uh, but or guys, all right, fine. Uh, or but I I'm not good enough to to play a thousand different people, nuanced and. But we don't look at it that way. We look at it. It's not like oh, that's Marge, the wacky neighbor lady. Um, oh, although I think you may have just yeah, stumbled just onto it, something. Yeah, that sounds pretty darn. Um, it's just oh, it's that person who's in that airport at that time with this history. It's not a it's not a stock character or anything. So um, we do repeat ourselves in some ways because it's it is close to us because you know we do have the same thoughts. I'm not going to all of a sudden really love golf, uh, and all of my characters are going to rightfully hate golf. <laughs> what do you have against golf now? Let's. Um, I was a caddy oh, as a kid. Okay. I was a caddy as a kid. I, somebody just recently, I, 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 I said, and I, I, you have to be careful saying this kind of thing in a crowd, that um, that while I enjoyed Caddyshack, it wasn't half the movie that Animal House is. Oh. And um, mm, people, yeah, you do have to watch people that. People took umbrage. Yeah, you do have to and watch they t- that. They told me that the reason I 
felt that way was because I don't golf. Oh, I don't golf, and it's a great movie. Okay, I'm just saying, I, I don't think it's quite the movie that Animal House is. Um, it's not the same movie. They have different names and everything. I just mean... Okay, you're not going to hear me say anything bad about Caddyshack. I'm not saying anything bad about it. It was, You will I, not I, hear, me any, hear me say anything but very good about, about Caddyshack. It's a great movie. Okay. And if you think otherwise, you're incorrect. All right. See, I had the same trouble the other day. Yeah, well, th- those were intelligent people you were talking to. You were self self admitted. What's it? you? They weren't intelligent. Huh. <laughs> I don't know. Huh. I'm just saying. I don't think. Um, Are they golfers? Apparently, they like golf. Oh well, I don't like them. Oh, okay. But still, the movie's great. Okay. I guess even a you know a broken clock. Is I should whatever. watch it again. Harold's movie. I know it's Harold's movie. I didn't mean to slight first, it. First one. I d- okay, so you have sentimental reasons. Well, not just that. It's great. Yeah, I, I know. Okay. Brian um, Doyle Murray wrote it. I, I okay. Now I feel bad. And is in it as the caddy master. I always like chunks of it better than I liked it from Ted Knight. Watch Ted Knight and tell me that's not the greatest thing ever. All right. Right I, now. No, I, I don't have. I'm not going to do it now, but I will do it. Because now, twice in a week, people have told me, you know what? It was an incendiary thing to Animal say. Animal House is not the movie that... Really? Let's drop it. Because now I feel bad. I feel like I... Those are both great movies. Exactly. Let's just agree on yeah, that. They're both great movies. I know. I, I don't know why this came up in a discussion. Maybe I was just... You just want to be contrary. I, I wasn't you one know, of those... You know how you are. <laughs> Wait a minute. Okay. Let's have it. I'm um, ready. Well, you, you... None of your fucking business, Lazaretti. You tend to... Uh, at times, I've, I've, I've wondered if you didn't have a bit of a contrarian streak. I don't know about that. I, you know, I, so it came up yesterday. Somebody who I don't know all that well was giving me shit for being so uh, critical of... Uh, so, but we've spoken today. I've not mentioned anything that I... I don't think that I've mentioned anything that I don't really like. Yeah. Have I, I been critical of any... I mean, no. there's not a lot... I mean, the truth is, there's not a lot to like. There's a lot of bad stuff out there, and I, I'm not gonna. I don't. I don't think it's wrong of me to not like shit. No, I. I and there's a lot of shit. I mean, we, we've been talking about some television shows and some movies and actors, and I've, uh, I, everyone we've mentioned, I really like. Let's talk about what you don't like. Okay. Go ahead. Name a few things. I'm not gonna. <laughs> See, well, you know golf. what? Golf. Golf, okay. That was the only thing so far, right? Yeah. So we've, we're talking about... Uh, uh, anyway. Maybe you've mellowed. Fuck you. <laughs> <laughs> I do think you have um, uh, certain artistic standards, certainly, for sure. You're a tough critic. I mean, I don't... That's not necessarily a bad thing. Okay. Um, I don't disagree. Okay. Why does somebody want to open a theater? God, because they're idiots. They don't have any foresight. Um, they don't understand. Ignorance. That's the only reason. You've wanted to do it a long time. We have talked about it for a long time. Bernie was suggested it. Bernie Salins, who founded Second City, he, he, he suggested it. And he's like, you know, because what you're doing is not what other people are doing. He was specifically referring to TJ and Dave. And... Uh, and so we've, we toyed around with the idea for a very long time. Ali Farnakian in, in New York, who owns the Pit, the People's Improv Theater, 
Um, he was real en- encouraging, and just his example we find encouraging. He, you know, to have your own place, and so we try to do that, and we're still trying to get that going. We're, I mean, we're here. We have a theater. Um, we're we're still uh, we're real happy with what's um, presented here. We do our show. We have a sketch review that we directed, which uh, we think is excellent. Um, and we have a, an improvised show with a group that we've been working with for a few months, and they're on Wednesdays, and they do something called, they're called Tone, and it's a two-act improvised show, and they're excellent as well. So we're real happy with what's uh, offered here. And also, Ike Riley played here, and um, we're, we're really happy with what we have to offer. We're having a hard time, you know, we need help getting people in here to see it. And, and f- m- the people who come really enjoy it. It's not like we're putting up stuff that people come and like, that ah, was horse shit. Uh, it's just, they're not coming. It's just hard to get people I out. Think, and, I think, st- not even get them out. They don't know that we're yeah, here awareness. still. Yeah, right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but is there, is there some sort of, it's the mission theater. What, what Your mission is to offer... Stuff that we think is of a certain caliber. Um, and, uh, and also to pay people. So a lot of the models of, uh, of some of the, like imp- improv theaters, some of the models are they're, they're you know, play for free. And uh, so we're, we're a little different than that. We're, we're trying to, more along the Second City model. We don't, can't pay as well as them, but we're, you know, trying to offer an opportunity for performers. I want to just throw out a few names of people and you just, um, tell me a little bit about Del Close. Uh, he was uh, uh, the only, pretty much the only teacher I've had, um, and he was uh, he was, boy, he was a great guy, uh, and you know, uh, at, uh, difficult as well. But just uh, I was working in a working around uh, Improv Olympic or Cross Currents back then, and uh, uh, most of the guys I was working with got hired by Second City, so I spent another n- almost year with Dell. Um, and I, at, at the time, it seemed like the worst thing that could happen that I didn't get hired. And it turns out in hindsight, I got, I got the benefit of more time with Dell. And that was, that's been far more helpful than being on the road of second city. Was he a hard character? He was, yeah, he was difficult for some people. He was difficult. He, uh, he was, he was difficult for some people. I really enjoyed him. He was always pretty, pretty cool to me. He got shitty at times, but um, uh, he he was great. And as I say, no one knew more about improvisation uh, and what it could be, and was more um, dedicated to improvisation than him. I don't know anybody was. Um, Bernie Sounds, great. Also, uh, I, a good friend of mine, great great guy. I got to spend a lot of time with him. Just uh, also very supportive and. Both of those guys, uh, and Harold too, those three guys that we've mentioned, unbelievably intelligent men, each one of them, uh, really extraordinary. Um, and so they're fun to be able to spend time with. It's, you just kind of feel uh, lucky. You know, after an evening with Bertie and Jane, you go home kind of giddy. Uh, it's like, wow, we got, to, we got to just spend the whole evening with those people. And, and Dell. And Harold, and it's still, a, and it's like Harold used to talk about walking on the set. He still gets excited walking on a back lot. 
you know, walking on the lot at Sony or something. Like, it's, look at this. Is, just always loved it. And that's the way I felt about it. I get to hang out with these people. These are my idols, mm-hmm. and I get to hang out with them. Uh, but all of them, real, uh, Bernie was real supportive in us starting our own joint. It was uh, really great. Just so fun, funny, smart, and helpful to so many people. Well, geez, Dave, I really appreciated your thanks for thanks for your, having your, me, man. Your kindness and sitting still for this, you know, maybe I'd like to, before we leave. You told me a funny story the other day that it has nothing really much to do with anything specific that we're talking about, but it's um, I think it's a good closer, uh, and that's the Mitch Rouse story about the guy in the car. Oh, yeah, um, Mitch was working down in. Uh Atlanta, I believe, at a record store, and a guy drove up and came in the record store, and it, Mitch looked outside, and his car was covered with uh, glued-on plastic lemons um, and a sign that said, I bought this lemon at, whatever, Bob Smith Pontiac. And uh, so the guy's looking for records, and Mitch's like, uh, hey, uh, What's up with the car? And uh, except he said it, probably said it more like this: "Hi, what's up with the car?" or something like that. Um, but the guy was able to understand him through his really thick hillbilly accent. And uh, and he said, "Oh, you got a minute? Yeah, uh, I bought that. I bought that lemon at, at Bob Smith Pontiac. Well, yeah, I can see that. Well, yeah, I can, even I can read." Says, yeah, no, uh, yeah, I bought that lemon at Bob Smith Pontiac. Um, and uh, well, what's what's the story? Well, it's it's a lemon. Yeah, I can see that. Uh, uh, I tried to bring it. Why didn't you just bring it back? Well, I did. I tried to bring it back. They wouldn't. They wouldn't. They wouldn't take it. Aren't there lemon? Yeah, I know. They were. I tried to bring it back, and then by the time, then those some of the they postponed it long enough that those laws expired. And now I'm kind of stuck with the thing, so I put all the, I put all those lemons on it, and I put that sign on it, and I parked right in front of their parking lot. I bought this lemon at Bob Smith Pontiac, and I parked it right in front of their lot and left it there all day. And uh, well, what happened? After a couple of days, they they offered to buy it back. And uh, well, why didn't you take it? Oh, it's not about the car anymore. That's right. <laughs> Right. It gets stuck in your head, man. All right. I've, this isn't, no, we've gone past that. Not about the car anymore. Is that, was that a good telling of yes, it? Yes, I liked it. The hillbilly thing confused me for a second. But yeah, then it's probably it, going to be confusing, except I think Mitch will get a kick out of it. <laughs> okay. Well, that's all right. That's <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for doing this, Dave. Thanks. All right, we should probably start because you have to go. Yeah, I do. Um, okay, that was that was uh, my interview with David Pasquazi. I'm here now with um, this is since this is the first episode. I just wanted to get some good feedback moving forward into subsequent episodes. So I've got uh, podcast phenoms Ed Flynn and Joey Leishak, um from the Go Bears Go with Eddie and Joe. Or is it the other way around? It's the other way around, but that's Go okay. Bears Go with Joe and Eddie. Uh-huh. 
No, Joey and Ed. Yeah, that's that's it. the one. <laughs> yes. Third time's the, a charm. The wise, the wise are interchangeable. Yeah, the with part isn't always said though, right? Isn't it usually just the go bears go? Usually, podcast? yes, yeah. yeah. Well, okay. thank you for calling us phenoms. That is a cr- uh, that's correct. That is one hundred percent. We we have tens of listeners. Mm-hmm. Um, Great. And so, that's what I'm shooting for. Yeah. yeah, it's, yeah, yeah. When once you get there, it's a thrill. Right. <laughs> yeah. It's a thrill. Um, I guess. It, uh, we had a. I had. I had some thoughts. Some I, specific so thoughts. I. I mean, I just want to start off by saying it was good. Yeah, it was oh, good. It was good. It was good. It was good. It was good. Up there. Okay. On a scale of one to a hundred thousand, it was like sixty-five percent. Yeah, which is pretty no. solid. So, I, you know what? Eighty-three. Oh, percent. Of one, one of out of one out of one hundred thousand. Yes. I don't know. The math on this seems complicated. <laughs> I, I if you rated it one to ten, wouldn't that just be easier? Nah. Yeah. I mean, I just like your interview style. I really dug. It was like one part David Letterman, one part Conan O'Brien, one part John Stewart, one part Jimmy Kimmel, one mm. part Craig Ferguson, mm-hmm. one part Rosie O'Donnell, one part Steve Allen, one part Sally Jesse Raphael. Mm-hmm. Uh, just stop me at any point in here. One pop Regis Philbin. Yeah. Uh, one stop, uh, Kathy Lee Gifford, uh-huh. uh, one part uh, Barbara Walters, uh-huh. uh, one part Rush Limbaugh. Do six more. Okay. One part Will be Goldberg, uh-huh. one part Larry King, one part Carson Daly, uh-huh. one part Glenn Beck, one part uh, Star Jones. I think that was only five, but I'll let you off. That's okay. That's no, all I got. Yeah, was... no, no, no. That's good. I, I, okay, here's a specific thing. I noticed you opened by saying, hello, everybody. Mm-hmm. Which to a millennial audience, which to Joey and I are millennials, sounds yeah. a little, it's just a little old fashioned to say hello, everybody. You want to go with something a little more hip and urban, like well, what's whizzy up? Yeah. What's whizzy up? Or uh, what's the dangy, my hippies? Uh, uh, yo, yo, yo. And the second one is the yo you lean on. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. What up, dog? Yeah. Or is that what old up to- timey too? That's no. also getting a little old fashioned sure, in my yeah. book. But yeah. I, you know, it still works. Or, uh, Oh joy! Oh, oh, what joy it was to be alive, but to be young was very heaven. And is another way you could open your mm-hmm. podcast. Yeah, millennials are really. Is that Rod McEwen? I think it's Lord Byron. Oh, I think I get those two mixed up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're very similar. Uh, I think you could use more sound effects. Oh, certainly. Certainly. Like a like a boo 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 that horn or a boy yong 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 yeah after a good joke or some tinglings mm-hmm. would be very good. Um, I think you need more gotcha questions. Oh yeah, you definitely didn't. You weren't aggressive enough at the t- at times. Right. You, need, you really need to at times try to get them to cry. Uh-huh. So you saw openings, yeah, that I didn't take. That you didn't take. Well, no, it wasn't even that. It's just like you need to put whenever you're interviewing someone, you need to put them in a position where they say something that they didn't intended to say that you can instead then use to market yourself. Yes. As like sound bites later. Does that make sense? Wait, yeah, I think it does. So you just want to trick them into saying something that they don't actually believe. Yeah, mm-hmm. exactly mm-hmm. right. Oh, okay. Yeah. I think Dave's kind of tough that way, though. I don't know if he'd allow himself. Well, you, you just got to, that's where preparation comes into place. When I saw the documentary Frost Nixon, uh, that guy. Uh, the, Frost. Uh, the Frost, before the slash. You know, he did, he didn't believe in himself for a while, too. And he said, yeah. Oh, Nixon. He said the same thing about Nixon. I don't think that was a documentary. It was a documentary film uh, that was set in the actual time. Um, it was a Ron Howard film. Is that what we're talking about? Yeah, the Ron Howard documentary that was shot in 1970. Frost Nixon. Whenever okay. the maybe I'm thinking whenever those events one. took place with all the real people. 
the, this is just something I wrote down, devoid of context. I think it speaks for itself. It's in quotes. It says, that's Rontastic. Oh. I think you could go to that every now yeah. and again. I see that on a billboard. Yeah. So that's more promotion ad kind of thing. Well, that's no, I think I, I think you could use it in the middle of an interview. Yeah, it, I would it, it say becomes, that's Rontastic. Yeah, yeah, it becomes a catchphrase, uh-huh. and then that leads to billboards and... Uh, Wouldn't it be better if the guests said, like if I made a joke and they went, that's Rontastic? That would weird actually, if I say it. I mean, that I would know. actually legitimately be pretty cool. Yeah, you would just have to make sure that they say that's Rontastic. You give you give each guest one Rontastic to throw out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, exactly right. Um, and I guess the last thing I have... Uh, and this is super important, uh, in my opinion, as far as a successful podcast, yeah. is just get a really dumb sidekick. Yeah, every, everyone needs uh, a dumb sidekick. A, get a real idiot that people hate. Yeah, like and, and just have them sort of comment secondly on the things that you say. Uh-huh, yeah, a real moron. Yeah. And just exploit them for being dumb. I'm Joey, by the way. <laughs> yeah. But, I mean, other, other than that, I really enjoyed it, Ron. Really? Yeah. That really okay. did. It was Rontastic. It was Rontastic. It was. <laughs> it was really. Well, I really appreciate, and I know Ed, you've got a you've got a plane to catch. I do. Yeah, I'm a fancy man. I thought it would be cool to say that. It's true. <laughs> but Ed's thank you, bag. thank you for making the time to do this. Of course. I mean, it's been Rontastic for me. Um, see, I don't think it works when I do it. I think it does, actually. <laughs> I think we got to get you in a T-shirt that says it. That's got a photo of you pointing at your own face. Yeah. Well, thank you very much, guys. Godspeed. Okay, that is the first episode of the Hog Butcher Radio Hour. I want to thank the always engaging David Pasquese for taking this maiden voyage with me, and thanks to Ed Flynn and Joey Leshock for their no-holds-barred critique. I'll try to get better, fellas. Coming soon, episode two, a conversation with the great filmmaker Steve James, director of Hoop Dreams, and the Roger Ebert documentary Life Itself, among many other great things. Finally, I have this notion to close out each episode with some music from Chicago artists, and I love this first one. It features an original Naomi Ashley song, sung by Naomi, and seasoned with a reading of a Carl Sandburg poem called Mamie. Performing that is the great Chicago poet and creator of the Poetry Slam, Mark Smith. This is Slow Train, recorded live at the Green Mill. Hang in there for it. It's it's really a great one. And thank you, and I'll catch you down the road. Watch she wave goodbye. Seems I've watched you wave goodbye. Most of my life I'm on a slow train I'm on a real slow train Got nothing to do but think 
of the stupid things I've done They go rolling by me One by one Playing trombones I'm on a slow train I'm on a real slow train Mamie beat her head against the bars of a little Indiana town Dreamed the big times far off where all the trains ran. She could see the smoke get lost down where the streaks of steel flashed in the sun. And when the newspapers came in on the morning mail, she knew there was a big Chicago far off where all the railroad tracks ran. She got tired of the barbershop boys and the post office chatter and the church gossip and the old pieces played on the 4th of July. She sobbed at her fate, beat her heads against the bars, and it was going to kill herself when the thought came to her that if she was going to die, she might as well die struggling for a clutch of romance on the streets of Chicago. She has a job now, $10 a week working in the basement of the Boston store. And even now, she beats her head against the bars in the same old way, wonders if there's a bigger place where the railroad tracks run to far from Chicago, where maybe there's a wilder romance, bigger things, and real dreams that never, never go smash. Man, I need someone to talk to. But no one wants to hear me complain I'm on a slow Mamie train. beat her head against the bars of a little Indiana town I'm on Dream real of romance far off She's got a job now Thanks, Mark.